Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the gift of your written word, for speaking to us through it. We pray now that you would speak to us through the preaching of your word, that you would give us ears to hear what you want to say to us. You have set your glory above the heavens, Father, and yet you are mindful of us. When we think of the galaxies and the universe and uh, your majesty being above all such things, of all of these being spoken into existence by the power of your word, who are we that you would care for us? Who are we that you are mindful of us? And yet, so you are. We ask that you would be mindful of us today, that you would care for us and speak to us in the time we have together. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So my name is Mike. I serve as the lead pastor here at our Center City Congregation of City Light Church. And uh, th- this week I had dinner with my brother. Um, and every time I do, I'm struck by just how different he and I are. I mean, we grew up in the same house. We look similar, according to other people. Um, and, you know, we live in the same city now, even. But um, he's like on double-digit number of tattoos now, I think. And I'm not, I'm not hiding any tattoos under my shirt here. Um, he goes to multiple shows in a given week, uh, concerts. I've been to four sh- concerts in my life, I think, maybe, maybe three even. Uh, the bands that he goes to see are like bands I've never heard of, and when he plays their music, it kind of scares me a little bit. So he's very different from me. But we get along great, and a big part of why we get along great is because we're able to look at each other and realize these are preferences, right? Uh, you know, that's your music, you're into that, good, that works for you. I have my own things I like, that's, that's my preference. I'm thankful for preferences. There are things in our lives that, that are just preferences, But there are things in life that aren't preferences. There are things in life that are facts of history that you kind of don't have the freedom to simply change by wanting them to be different. Uh, We live in an age where people talk about alternative facts or fake news, right? And we say, that's a bad thing. (laughs) We shouldn't be listening to such things. We shouldn't be propagating such things. Uh, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan has been quoted often. He said, you are entitled to your own opinions, but not your own facts. You're entitled to your own opinions, but not your own facts. I'm entitled to take a different opinion on what bands are good and what concerts I want to go to, but I'm not entitled to, you know, decide whether the American slave trade happened, for example. That's a fact of history, right? I can't just write that out of the books. Well, what we're going to see today is that the Christian message is more like that than it is an opinion. It's more got to do with facts than it does with opinions, more like whether something happened in history than like which band you happen to prefer. And that's because we're coming to the part of the Apostles' Creed, that ancient summary of Christian belief that says, I believe in Jesus Christ. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. These are claims about things that actually happened in history, about the state of things as they really are today. And if they're facts, well then, you're not entitled to your own facts. So, through the passage that was just read, we're going to look at each of those parts of the creed. And these parts summarize what theologians call the exaltation of Christ. There was the humiliation of Christ we looked at last week, coming down from heaven, taking on a body, dying, descending into hell. And now we're talking about the exaltation of Christ, where we'll see he rose, he ascended, and he is seated at God's right hand. But before we get into that, The beginning of this passage that we've just read gives us a nice review of where we've recently been in the creed. Last week I mentioned we talked about the humiliation of Christ, that he uh, suffered under Pontius Pilate, he crucified, died, and was buried, he descended into hell. And so also this passage begins uh, with a sermon by this guy named Peter, who was one of Jesus' first followers, one of the early leaders in the Christian church. 
It gives us a little summary of what he said. And when he begins his sermon, he's talking about the death of Christ. He's speaking to the men of Israel in the same year in which Jesus was executed. And he looks at them, and in verse 23 he says, This Jesus you killed by the hands of lawless men. You killed him. Anti-Semitism and violence against Jewish people. People have said, oh, look, they killed Jesus, so we should be justified in committing horrible atrocities against them. So before I get into the exaltation of Christ, I want to just briefly explain why that is a total perversion of the actual meaning of this passage. What this passage, uh, the first thing we can say about it is Peter, the person who's preaching this sermon, is himself Jewish. So are all the disciples who are with him, who are kind of on his team. They can't possibly be saying that there's something inherently defective about the Jewish people that justifies hatred, oppression, and violence against them, because they are themselves among them. But they do say, you killed them, right? He looks at the men of Israel and he says, there there is a collective guilt of the people of Israel that day for the death of Christ. Now, even if they were the only ones responsible for it, which in a moment we're going to see they're not, it would provide no basis for oppression, violence, anti-Semitism of any sort. Because even though the Bible does place a collective guilt on the Jewish people for the death of Christ, it never infers from that that Christians are then somehow justified or that anyone is somehow then justified in abusing, killing. And here's how we know. The Bible never gives anyone permission to do that. And none of the early Christians actually did. It's nowhere exampled for us. In fact, the Bible itself would tell us that such a thing is wicked in the sight of God. Because no matter how guilty of sin somebody is, They are made in his image. Whatever your creed, whatever your race, whatever your religion, you are made in the image of God. And therefore, every person, Jews, anyone else, possesses a certain dignity that every Christian is commanded to respect and protect. So even if the Jewish people were were exclusively responsible for the death of Christ, to then use that as an excuse to oppress and kill them would be an abomination in the sight of God and was an abomination in the sight of God in the times when it has happened throughout history. That said, they actually aren't exclusively responsible for the death of Christ. Even in verse 23, what does Peter say? He says, this Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, when a Jewish person says lawless men, they mean people outside of the law. They mean non-Jews. The creed itself says, the Apostles' Creed that we've been reciting, that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is not a Jew. Pontius Pilate was a Roman governor. The death of Christ is not an action of one group of people. It's actually a a conspiracy, a, a partnership between the Jewish people and the other nations of that day as a representation not just of Jewish hostility against God, but a manifestation of all of humanity's hostility against God. Which means, when you hear Peter say, you killed Jesus, you shouldn't be thinking, Yeah, somebody else out there, some wicked group out there, actually killed Jesus. It's it's about all of our sins, sending Jesus to the cross. There's a rapper uh, who's actually from Philadelphia named Shai Lin. And in his song, Were You There?, this is what he says. He's talking about the way those who killed Jesus treated him. The way they treat the Lord of glory is debased and it's foul. But you miss the point if you don't see your face in the crowd. A few weeks ago, we read the Bible's description that all of humanity has been hostile in mind towards God. Meaning, since sin has entered into the world, all of us by nature have looked at God and pushed back. 
And when God became a human, we killed him. Our sins sent Jesus to the cross. So with that in mind, now let's talk about the fact that he rose. Next thing we read after verse 23 in Acts chapter 2, verse 24, is that God raised him from the dead, loosing him from the pangs of death. Uh, the same Jesus who, committed, who did the miracles, the same Jesus you crucified, Peter says, is the same Jesus who rose from the dead. God raised him up. And it says he loosed the pangs of death. Now, loosing is a word that was used in slavery context usually. It was to release someone from their slavery, to set them free. You loosed them. And in the Bible, death is a, an enslaving force, an enslaving power, a curse on sin that everyone who is guilty of sin is inherently subject to, such that even the most powerful and free human beings have ever lived died. Think of any of them, right? Julius Caesar, Napoleon, Genghis Khan, whoever. They're dead. One thing they all have in common, they were not powerful enough to be loosed from the power of death. They were under its curse. Jesus came to willingly take that curse on himself, though it was not rightfully his. And he genuinely did take it. He really did die, as we confess in the creed. But he did not remain dead. God loosed him. From, he released him from that penalty that was pronounced over him. Because, verse 24 says, it was impossible for death to hold him. See, unlike every human who ever lived... Unlike even the most powerful on earth, Jesus is one with a power greater than even death. He is God himself. He, he's a divine person, one in being with the Father, and therefore he is omnipotent, all-powerful. It's impossible that any other power could come against him and ultimately succeed. He has all power. Nothing is greater than he. Furthermore, even as a human, he's the only human being who never sinned. And therefore, death, as a penalty for sin, had no rightful claim over him. It could not hold him. So it's kind of like uh, if somebody goes to prison because they took the charges of someone else on themselves, willingly, and then they get to prison, and everybody meets him, and they're kind of like, hey, you don't belong here, man. You're, you're like different from everyone else. Jesus dies, and he's the only one to go through death who didn't deserve it, who didn't actually sin in his own person, who was tempted in every way yet without sin. And so therefore, it's impossible that death would hold him. He's too powerful for it. He's too righteous to suffer such a penalty. Now, this, of course, is the opposite of what most people today think about the resurrection. If you were to tell most people today, Jesus rose from the dead, what would they say? They'd say, that's impossible. Right? Maybe you feel that way. That's impossible. People don't rise from the dead. But if you're thinking biblically, when you hear someone say, Jesus of Nazareth, he was just another guy, he preached a little message, and then he got killed, and he's dead today just like every other person. If you're thinking biblically, you ought to be thinking next, but that's impossible. How could that be? He, he's God, and he never sinned. So death, is, death could not hold him. That, that could never be. So you see how much your assumptions influence your evaluation of whether the claim that Jesus rose from the dead is a fact or not. If you assume that death is kind of a natural part of our existence that everybody has to go through, that there is no power that reigns even over death, then of course, Jesus can't rise from the dead. You're not going to see this message as factual. But if death is not natural, if it's a foreign invader, if it's something we instinctively rage against because we know it's not natural, if it's a curse on sin, which is what the Bible says, 
then not only is it possible that Christ could rise from the dead, it's impossible that Christ would not rise from the dead. Not only might Jesus rise from the dead, Jesus must rise from the dead. He's too powerful. He's too righteous for death to hold him. And that's exactly what he did. Are you still skeptical? Peter goes on to give us more reasons. He says, first, it was impossible for death to hold him. Then he quotes an earlier part of the Bible, the Old Testament, uh, part of the Bible written before Jesus came, and an old Israelite king named David, who wrote uh, a lot of the book we call the Psalms. And this Psalm is the one that he's quoting here, Psalm 16. David says in it that God would not abandon his soul to Sheol or let him see corruption, but would rather make him glad in God's presence. Peter looks at that and he says it's been a hundred years now, hundreds of years since David wrote that. But I can tell you for sure that David's body is in the tomb today. They actually knew where David's tomb was. People saw his body get put in it. His flesh has now been corrupted. And so he's saying this can't be about David. There has to be someone else. If this psalm is true, if God's word is true, there has to be someone else coming whose flesh would not see corruption. Quick aside, okay, this is a parenthesis. If you've been with us throughout this series, you've, you've heard us talking about Christ descending into hell. This idea here of Hades is part of the reason we say that in the creed. Hades is the Greek word that's translated to hell in the Apostles' Creed. It's not the same word that's used for the place of final judgment. That's the Greek word Gehenna. Hades in the Bible often refers to just the realm of the dead, where dead bodies go. It's called the heart of the earth in other places. It's burial, basically. It's a more vivid way of saying that Christ was really put into the tomb, that not only his soul descended into hell under the wrath of God, but his body descended into hell in dwelling in the realm of the dead. Well, Peter is here saying, we know David's body is still there. Christ's body went there. He was buried, but he did not stay there. He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. David saw that there was a descendant from him who would reign on his throne forever because God had promised it to him. And Peter is saying, that's what Christ is. He's risen from the dead and reigning today as the fulfillment of that promise. So it was impossible for death to hold him. Scripture prophesied that the Christ would rise from the dead. And then if you're still not convinced, he gives another reason in verse 32. He says, of that we are all witnesses. This is why I said Christian faith is based on facts, not just opinions. Peter's saying something actually happened in history, and we saw it with our own eyes. This is eyewitness testimony in the same year in which it happened. The witnesses are all there. And he doesn't even just say, I saw it. You know, trust me, take my word for it. He says, we saw it. Ask around. Ask all these people who are present. Multiple people saw it. Now you can say, well, they all got together and made it up. But as the story unfolds, we find that about 90% of these early people who were witnesses of this, who testified to it, were killed for their testimony. Blaise Pascal said, I believe the prophets that get their throats cut. So what are the odds that they knew they were lying, right? They made it up. They got together and they cracked up a conspiracy to start a new religion. They made it up. And for something they knew was a lie, they were willing to be put to death. Even though they knew there was no actual hope after death. Even though they knew there was no actual resurrection. People die for their religion with some frequency in our world. It doesn't make the religion true. But people die because they believe it's true. What you'd be saying in this case is that these guys died for something they knew was a lie. That they knew wasn't true. And who does that? What's the best historical explanation for it? Again, 
If you assume that resurrections can't happen, of course you're not going to think that's the best historical explanation, but, but you see your assumptions are what's driving that again. You can roll your eyes at this argument, and people have, but that's not a refutation. How do you actually refute it? What's the best explanation? The best explanation is that Christ really did rise from the dead. It was impossible for death to hold him. The scriptures prophesied it, and the witnesses testified to it down to their very death. What that means is, he really is who he said he was. He claimed to be the son of God, and God raised him from the dead to say, yes, he really is. Have you ever trusted someone only to find out they weren't who they said they were? If you have, you probably remember it. It's incredibly painful. When I was in sixth grade, I remember this from sixth grade, it stuck with me, right? Because it's painful. I had friends, so I, I thought they were my friends, and so I trusted them, but I found out later they were making fun of me behind my back. If you trust Jesus Christ as the Son of God, that will never happen to you. You will never find, oops, he's not who he said he was. God has risen him from the dead, specifically so you would know that. Specifically so, as verse 36 says, you would know for certain that God has made him both Christ and Lord, this Jesus whom you crucified. He is truly the Son of God. It's proof that death could not hold him. And if he's been released from the sentence of death, that sentence of death no longer hangs over those who belong to him. Death will no longer hold you if you belong to him. Death is a debt for sin, okay? And when you owe a debt, if somebody else says, I'm going to pay down your debt, that's great. But if they're still paying it, the debt still hangs over your head. You still owe it. What this is saying is that the debt has been paid in full. Christ has been released from, loosed from, the pangs of death. And God is saying, your debt is paid in full through Christ. He's released, and because he is, so also are those who are in him through faith. Third day, he rose again from the dead, and then he ascended. The original story of Christ's ascent into heaven, as we call it, is recorded in Acts chapter 1. Uh, in verse 9, chapter before this, it says, He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Peter summarizes it in verse 33 of our passage, when he says, Christ was therefore exalted at the right hand of God. He compares him to David. Again, verse 34, he says, David didn't ascend into the heavens, but Christ did. David talked about a Lord sitting at the right hand of his Lord. Who's that Lord? It can't be David. David's in the ground. It must be Christ who has ascended now into the heavens. All this has to do with the location of their bodies, right? He's saying David's in the grave, but Christ actually bodily rose from the dead. So where's his body now? That's, well, the ascension answers that question. His body is in this realm called heaven. Uh, and throughout the Bible, this realm is described as being above us, uh, basically above the farthest thing your eye can see. So above the sky, above the planets, above the stars, uh, now we have, you know, the Hubble Deep Field, above that, whatever, it's, it's beyond all of that. We don't know exactly what it is, right? Is it another spatial realm? Is it um, you know, an alternate dimension or another universe or whatever? Um, but the, the important thing is that Christ's body is physically there, and it's described as being above everything else to speak to his glory, the majesty that he now has. It's a little hard for us who don't live with kings, but you've probably seen it in movies. People address kings as your highness, you're above. Thrones would be set up high and we would bow down. 
before those thrones. Um, you know, we, we still have some of this. Like people say tall people tend to have more success in life, right? They also have a harder time getting through doors. So I don't know. It's a blessing and curses to everything. I'm 5'9", so I feel like I, I lucked out. I'm right, right average, you know, just nothing extraordinary. Um, pe- you know, at, at weddings, right? The people will put the bride and groom on a chair and like lift them up in the air because they're saying they're the center of attention. This, this event is about them. Uh, we still build skyscrapers, right? We want to get them as high as possible. We want to climb really high mountains. We talk about a social ladder, right? Certain people who are higher than others have more glory, more power. Well, above every mountain, above every bride and groom, above every skyscraper, at the top of the ladder, the Bible tells us God has set his glory above the heavens, above the farthest thing the mind can conceive, the eyes can see. And now this is saying that's where Christ is. That's the glory that Jesus Christ now possesses. The very glory of God the Father has been given to him. So, do you view him that way? Does he have that kind of glory in your heart? Here's how you tell. Who do you impersonate? Who do you want to be like? Whose will determines your will? And who, when they are pleased with you, lights up your world? Whose opinion means more to you than anyone else's? If you're trying to climb the corporate ladder, you'll look up the ladder at people who have succeeded beyond you, You'll impersonate them. You'll do the things they want you to do. And when they tell you you're somebody, when they tell you you did a good job, it lights up your world. Tolkien uh, said, the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. When the person you think the world of, you find out, is pleased with you, it's above all rewards. Who's who's that person that's most praiseworthy to you? For me, it's often been uh, academic success, and I'm still taking some classes uh, at seminary, continuing education, and... Uh, as a result, I look up to the professor. And when I get a good grade, it's the highlight of my month or the highlight of my year. If it's your parents, you, know, you look up to them, you, you'll, you'll want to impersonate them. You'll do whatever they tell you to do. And when they're pleased, you'll be pleased. But if Christ is above all those things, if his glory is above the heavens, if he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, impersonate him. Let his will determine your will. And find your greatest joy in knowing that he is pleased with you. Let his opinion be the one that matters in your life. There's nothing better than when the person who actually is exalted above all others is pleased with you. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And now we get to the part of where he currently is. So far in the creed, we've been talking about what he did. He died. He became a human. He descended into hell. But now we get to the part that tells us what he's doing now, where he is now. He is seated at God's right hand. Verse 33 doesn't just say he was exalted. It says he was exalted at the right hand of God. So this is the throne above every other throne, the one to which we've been alluding. We don't know, again, a lot about the details of heaven, composition, or whatever, but we do know that God doesn't have hands. So when the Bible says that Jesus is seated at God's right hand, it's not referring so much to him holding a hand or something. It's referring to his position. When you're seated at the right hand of a ruler, it means you share in all the power and glory of that ruler. Christ is not under God the Father. He's actually been seated next to at the right hand and now possesses all the glory and honor of God himself. Now, if you're paying attention, um, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you might be thinking, well, didn't Jesus already have that? He, he was God from the beginning. He's always been God. He's always had the glory of the Father with him. 
Yes, true. But now when he returns to the Father, he returns having done something that he had never done before. He returns with a human body. He returns having personally, perfectly, and perpetually obeyed the will of his Father while on earth. He returns having obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross. Though he was God from all eternity, with no ability to die, he became a human and now returns as the one who did die and who overcame and conquered the grave. This is mysterious, and I thought all week about how to explain it and didn't come up with anything, so it's mysterious. Um, Right now, Jesus actually has more glory than he did before the foundation of the world. He... If infinity can increase, that's what I'm talking about. He now receives a praise and honor that exceeds even, in a mysterious way, the praise and honor that he had from all of eternity because he has accomplished the work of salvation. See, when he was on earth, uh, his glory is veiled, it's hidden. He looks like another guy. Isaiah, the passage we read this morning, he says, We esteemed him stricken by God, smitten and afflicted says he had no former beauty that we should desire him. He looked like an average Joe. In fact, on the cross, he looked worse. He looked like a criminal. He looked like somebody hated by God. God's love for him was veiled and on the cross even for a time removed. But now, the love and the pleasure of God the Father in God the Son is fully manifested. God is perfectly pleased and delighted in the person of his Son and now, in the work that the Son has done for our salvation in obedience to the command of his heavenly Father. God is eternally satisfied and pleased with the work of Christ. It is finished. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's not doing more stuff up there. He's sitting because the work of salvation has been accomplished, which means if you're a Christian, if if you've trusted in Christ, every day you wake up, and no matter how long your to-do list is that day, you wake up with the most important task of your life already completed. Jesus Christ has accomplished the work of salvation in its entirety. There is nothing left for you to do. It is finished, Jesus said. It is done. God looks at him and is completely and infinitely satisfied with the work of Christ on your behalf. As a result, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He rules now over everything in existence, and he rules the way he does it is by the power of his Holy Spirit, which he sends. Do you notice in verse 33 how it says he was not only exalted, but that he received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit? Don't get confused by all this. We're going to get to the Holy Spirit in a couple weeks more focus uh, when we get to that part of the Apostles' Creed, but for now, I'll just say this. The Spirit is God and was the agent of the first creation, so the Spirit gives life. What this is saying is that when Jesus rose from the dead, the Spirit gave him a new life, but not a life that would ever die again, an indestructible, imperishable, perfected life. And Peter says that Spirit is what's now been poured out on these people. So his final evidence that Jesus is risen from the dead is he says, you've now seen and heard this Holy Spirit in your midst to the people of Israel. A little bit of the background here. The people Peter's preaching to have literally just seen tongues of fire come down from heaven. They've heard people speaking in languages that those people didn't know. And then they heard those languages in their native tongue. Peter says, that was the spirit that you heard and saw. And if the spirit has been poured out, Christ must be seated at the right hand of God. Christ must have received him first and poured him out on us. Now, 
I'm guessing most of you here today haven't seen tongues of fire falling from heaven. That's a unique story in the Bible even of the first time the Spirit fills the church. But if you've seen someone's life changed by Christ, if your life has been changed by Christ, then you have seen and heard the work of the Holy Spirit. I talked to a guy once who worked in a prison and he would meet prisoners who would come in who weren't Christians and who would then become Christians in prison. And he said, they're just not the same person anymore. You knew them before, you know them after. They're not the same person. We've had people in our church who have come to services here before they were Christians and who eventually became Christians. And now, maybe we've been here for a few years now, I know some of them years later, and sometimes I just have to like remember, wait a second, this person's totally different. I knew them before, now I know them. People know that about me. I've been a Christian about 12 years, and um, people knew me before that and know me now. So if you've seen this work, if it's happened in your life, you have seen and heard the work of the Spirit. How is that possible? It's possible because someone overcame death. Somebody rose from the dead and has poured out that same spirit into your life to make you into an entirely new person. He rose, he ascended, and he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Conclusion, verse 36, let the house of Israel know, let all present today know, for certain, fact, that God has made him both Christ and Lord. This Jesus, whom you crucified, that's a hard word to hear. You crucified, I crucified, our faces were in the crowd. It's a hard word to hear, but we've got to be honest about it. He's saying that the Jesus that God has now given the position above every other position, the power above every power, is the same one that you and I crucified, that our sins sent to the cross. Can you be honest about that? Do you see your face in the crowd? Don't, don't just give the answer that makes you feel better. It's, it's, it's not going to help in this situation. Be honest. When you look at your life, when you look back on your life, have you been hostile in mind towards Christ? looking for every possible argument to refute what is clearly said about him? Have you been indifferent to him, climbing another ladder in your life and just leaving his claims to the side, not even evaluating them? Have you been saying the creed and professing faith when in reality you've been worshiping a different Lord and serving a different God? Here's the hard thing about a Lord. Um, You don't get to elect a Lord Jesus hasn't been elected Lord. You don't get to choose. Well, I don't, maybe I want him, maybe I don't. He is Lord. Know for certain that God has made him both Christ and Lord, and his resurrection from the dead is the proof. His ascension and exaltation is the proof. He's reigning there today, and it's the same Jesus that we killed. There's a, my wife went away recently with our son uh, for a night or two to, to her par- parents' house, um, and every time they go away, I can honestly say that I miss them. I really just don't love it when they're not there. I can also honestly say that there's things I like doing when they're not there that I don't do when they are there. Like I watch movies that my wife would never watch with me. So recently I watched the movie Heat uh, when, when they were gone. Heat is like a three-hour crime action thriller that my wife would never want to watch with me. So I watched it. I enjoyed it. Robert De Niro plays the main character, and his name is Neil McCauley in the movie. And Neil is the head of a very effective group of criminals. Well, at one point in the movie, there's another criminal named Van Sant. And Van Sant sets up a meeting with Neil where he tries to kill him, but he doesn't succeed. So Neil comes back from the dead, so to speak. And just, you know, give me some license on that for this illustration. But um, Neil comes back from the dead, and Neil calls him. And it's one of the more famous lines in the movie. Uh, On the phone, he says to Van Sant, 
I'm talking to an empty telephone because there is a dead man on the other end of this line. And Van Sant is immediately struck with fear. He locks himself in his office and doesn't come out for the rest of the movie. He's trembling. He's getting food delivered to him until Neil finally finds him and kills him at the end. I think that kind of fear is something like what verse 37 means when it says that when the men of Israel heard this, they were cut to the heart. They realize the guy we killed. I mean, no doubt about that, right? We, we, we cooked up the charges against him. We took him before a Roman judge. We said, give us a criminal in his place and keep him and crucify him. That guy's risen from the dead. And not only has he risen from the dead, but he's been exalted to the right hand of the Father and given the power to do whatever he wants. You see how scary that is? Is it scaring you if your sins sent him there? Are you saying with them yet in verse 37, what shall we do? What shall I do if I haven't been loving him, if I've been an enemy of his? Well, thankfully for them, and thankfully for you and me, there's an answer, and the answer isn't Neil Macaulay's answer. Thankfully for us, Jesus is a merciful and kind Lord. And look at how he responds through Peter in verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. For the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, you who killed Jesus, the promise of forgiveness of sins, it's for you and for your children and for all who are far off. It's for everyone. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And if you're here today, that's what God is doing. He is calling you to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins that you too might receive the promised Holy Spirit. Our sins sent him to the cross and yet the promise is for us the promise of forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you see your face in the crowd? If you don't see your face in the crowd of those who sent Jesus to the cross, you won't see your face in the crowd of those who are offered forgiveness through the death of Jesus on the cross. You don't have to be a dead man on the other end of that phone because on the other end of the line, there's one who died and who rose for you so that you might be forgiven. So just repent Turn from your sin to God and receive the forgiveness of sins. Receive the promise of the Holy Spirit today. Indifference is not an option. With the Lord, you can't just be indifferent. You're either allied with him, submitted to him, or you're not. You don't elect him, right? You don't make him Lord. He is Lord, and you can either subject yourself to him, declare him Lord, and call him Lord, or you can resist and fight against him. C.S. Lewis said, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. He is a Lord unlike any other Lord who came down to die for you before he rose up to rule you, who instead of killing you for your disobedience was killed in your place for your disobedience who, while our sins were nailing him to the cross, prayed for you, Father, forgive them. He doesn't rule you to get something from you. You couldn't give him anything in the first place. He's got all the glory already. He rules you to give something to you.
to give you his Holy Spirit, to dwell in you, to empower you, to guide you, to assure you of his love for you, to equip you to live, not in ways that lead to death, but in ways that lead to the abundant life that he now enjoys at the right hand of his Father. He has completed the work of salvation. He has delivered to his Father a perfect righteousness and a perfect sacrifice. Just call him Lord. Call him your Lord. If you believe in him, as the creed says, if you call him Lord, who on the third day rose from the dead, who ascended into heaven, who is seated today at the right hand of the Father Almighty, the same pleasure and satisfaction that God the Father has in God the Son will be the pleasure and satisfaction that he has in you. You will receive the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. And one day, he will take you to be with him where he is, that you might behold his glory forever. Let's pray. Our Father, you have set your glory above the heavens, and your Son is now seated there at your right hand, reigning over us by the power of his Spirit. We pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we might come out of darkness and into your marvelous light. God, I pray that you would lead us in repentance turning from our sins to Jesus Christ. We confess, Lord, that it was our sins that sent him to the cross. And we worship him now as our risen, our ascended, our glorified Savior who reigns with mercy and with kindness over his people, who has extended to us forgiveness of sins, who has made for us a perfect sacrifice in our place through whom the curse of death no longer will have the final word over our lives. We give you thanks for him, and we pray that he would rule and reign in our hearts over everything else. We pray that you would fill us with hope as we look ahead to our future, where we will behold his glory forever. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.